Hello and welcome to the Meningitis Foundation New Zealand podcast. We aim to provide you with easy to understand information about meningitis and septicemia and the diseases that cause them, mainly pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease. Our guest today is Dr. Emma Best. Emma is a researcher at the University of Auckland and she's also employed both at Starship Children's Hospital, which is part of Auckland DHB, and the University of Auckland. Specifically, she's a paediatrician with a specialisation in infectious diseases. That means she cares for children with meningitis and advises on policy for vaccination and antibiotic management of meningitis. She's also a medical advisor at IMAC, which is the Immunisation Advisory Centre, and she has a special interest in immunisations. Dr Emma Best, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. To start off, I'm really keen to find out a little bit about about you, how you became interested in this field of medicine and specifically pneumococcal and meningococcal disease. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a a paediatrician and I'm a a specialist in infectious diseases. So um, I trained as a a doctor and um, I grew up in New Zealand uh, and travelled to work overseas and train when I became a paediatrician in Australia and then subsequently in Singapore, and I did some work in Cambodia as well. And um, I've always had an interest in microbes, I guess, and how they impact on the human body. And so bacteria like pneumococcus and meningococcus are a really important childhood um, bacterium. And so that was, they were uh, my two areas or areas that I was particularly interested in. So having been a paediatrician, uh, the reasons that children come to hospital are often infections. And so the particular infections they come with, uh, I was interested in pneumonia and ear infections and how we can prescribe better for children. And all those things sort of came together with me becoming a specialist uh, in infectious diseases and looking at these, um, particularly streptococcus pneumoniae or pneumococcal disease is one of my areas of interest. And you spend your time on both research work as well as clinical practice. How do you divide your time between the two? Um, Sometimes with difficulty. So, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, um, uh, I, I think I'm really lucky that I get to do uh, work with you know, fabulous families and children and people who are professionals in child health and in clinical work uh, and get to, um, on call to answer questions from other paediatricians across the country. Uh, and I do that around one every four weeks, so one, one week in every four. And then uh, other times I have... Um, work with the university where I am a teacher of junior doctors and people who are doing postgraduate degrees as well in science and then uh, have uh, sometimes where I get to do some research and look at the laboratory level side of things and, and bugs. So uh, yes, it's uh, kind of a 50-50 split, but um, maybe it doesn't always make up to 100%. <laughs> so in your role as, as teacher and mentor, you're the perfect person to ask to to help us understand by explaining what meningitis is and how meningococcal and pneumococcal actually sit under that umbrella of meningitis. Can I throw that um, open yeah, to you? That's a really, <laughs> it's a really good question. And I think that um, it's something that everyone gets confused and, and definitely um, not just um, people who aren't scientists or work in science fields, but also um, families and um, doctors and junior doctors and general practitioners and even specialist doctors. So uh, I think of um, meningitis as the name for the, the infection of the meninges, and that's the membrane that sits around the brain. 
Um, the brain floats in fluid inside our skull and has a brain a membrane called the meninges that is around it. And when that gets inflamed, we use the term itis, so meningitis. That's inflammation of the meninges around the brain. There are uh, infection reasons that happen. They can be virus viruses and they can be bacteria. And bacteria are the organisms that are all over us at all different times and some of them pass between people and some of them live with us quite happily. And streptococcus pneumonia is one of the bacteria that sits in the nose of lots of young children. It's commonly in adults but um, can be breathed in, can go into the bloodstream and can sometimes cross the bloodstream and into the around the surface of the brain to cause meningitis or infection of that, that membrane around the brain. And meningococcal or Neisseria meningitis is another bacterium much less likely to be found in the nose but is occasionally and also passes into the bloodstream and goes around the brain membrane to cause meningitis. Because it was such a common, not common, but the reason that that bug was one of the more common reasons to cause meningitis, it got its name, um, Neisseria meningitis, from the kind of infection it caused. But meningitis is a big umbrella term for that inflammation of the, the brain lining. Um, and it's caused by different bugs, including pneumococcus or streptococcus pneumoniae and Neisseria meningitis or meningococcal. Right. So how do you, you spoke a little bit about both bacteria and viral infections. How do you distinguish between what is bacterial or viral meningitis? Um, well, it certainly can be difficult and I think um, they can look quite similar. So when you have an inflammation of the membrane around the brain, a person or a child would feel uh, unwell, they would have fevers, they can have um, that the classic sort of sore neck or not liking bright light. Uh, so those things that sort of irritability of the the brain and membranes and that makes you not want to move your legs or get up and walk around. If you're a child, you feel really cranky, might be crying a lot and have high fevers. Um, it's not until uh, you come to hospital with those high fevers and maybe some evidence of not being uh, well with sepsis, so fast heart rate and uh, high temperatures and low blood pressure that um, the doctors would then do blood tests to look for the bacteria in your bloodstream and potentially a lumbar puncture. So actually looking at the fluid around the brain and seeing how many cells and what kinds of bugs and viruses are there. So we can use the laboratory to tell us whether it's a virus or a bacterium, but the presentation can look quite similar and um, viruses can give people headaches and fevers uh, and cause an inflammation of the lining of the brain too. They just don't usually have the uh, very nasty, um, life-threatening consequences that happen when you have a pneumococcal or meningococcal infection of the brain lining. Right. Now, many doctors have spoken about how meningitis is the disease that they fear the most, but it's the one that they'll never forget. Has this been the case for you? Um, well, yes. I mean, I think we um, we certainly are fearful of, of, of meningitis in that it says uh, can present very rapidly. So people can be feeling okay one day, a little bit unwell the next day, uh, then certainly get sort of very serious headache and fevers and within 24, 48 hours have a serious infection around the brain lining, which can cause brain swelling and potentially uh, uh, certainly death if it's not treated. Um, so uh, we do learn a, how to recognise the important symptoms, uh, how to manage quickly those people who might have those symptoms. Um, and I think that's the reason we think of it never to be forgotten because importantly, if you think of the fever, the headache or a person who looks like they might have meningitis, you need to act and do those next steps of investigating what could be a cause 
and giving treatment to cover the important causes. So I think when we talk about not forgetting, it's sort of um, not so much that every single case is remembered, but that we always think of it first up and make sure we rule that out. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, is this or isn't this meningitis? And one of the taglines that the foundation has used is every second counts when they talk about people acting on those symptoms and seeking medical advice. Obviously, timing and getting people to hospital is important, but also from your perspective, it sounds as if that diagnosis and the treatment is really important in managing the best patient outcome. Um, yeah, so I think that um, it, it is important to <clears throat> uh, have an awareness. Um, it, it, you know, meningitis isn't very, very common, but some of those symptoms that happen with it, people have an awareness, talk with, go to see their doctors, present early rather than waiting and or perhaps going off to bed and not having anyone around to, to know and support them should they be feeling more unwell later in the, uh, through the night. Um, in more remote areas uh, of New Zealand, there's certainly seeing the doctor and getting those antibiotics quickly is really important. But really, when you come to the emergency department uh, or, or to a hospital, taking some of the tests and getting the diagnosis is going to be important as well. And so early antibiotic management, but also early diagnosis is, is useful um, to make sure we give exactly the right treatment and, uh, for meningitis too. Now, that's a really interesting point because you've you've raised there some of the regional, rural and remote access to antibiotics and the way in which it's treated based on the diagnosis. There's lots of discussion at the moment about that early use of antibiotics and whether it actually helps to treat the disease and reduce the outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about whether there are current guidelines for early antibiotic use? Uh, Yes, so there is. um, So probably the the only, so we we talked about the different types of um, bugs that can cause meningitis. The best evidence around early use of antibiotics is actually for meningococcal disease. So that particular bug, Neisseria meningitis, can cause meningitis, but it can also cause a very nasty sepsis. And it's probably one of the things that New Zealanders in particular remember because we had a had quite a high high rate of meningococcal disease in the past and certainly large outbreaks uh, several years ago. And that's the um, non or the blanching or non blanching, progressively non blanching rash that people see and that sort of rapid spread of a rash along with a very unwell child or adult um, that in that situation getting early antibiotics possibly before hospital um, either from an, uh, a general practitioner or a ambulance as you're traveling to hospital uh, is potentially life-saving but most of the time other meningitis actually uh, the outcomes about just making sure that you're getting to have early management and diagnosis and treatment rather than uh, immediate antibiotics. So I think the meningococcal sepsis, which is the bug possibly in the bloodstream causing the rash, with or without meningitis, there's good evidence to say that it's important to get those antibiotics in. And there are very good guidelines from the Ministry of Health for general practitioners and frontline carers about what antibiotic to use and how to give that um, and then sending somebody off urgently to an emergency department. Mm-hmm. So yes, there are good guidelines. And it's kind of um, a little bit of overlap with meningitis, but also around uh, sepsis and being really unwell with an evolving rash that's important in that situation too. Now you used a phrase there about a non-blanching rash. Can you explain what that means? Uh, yeah, so um, we probably have all seen those spotty rashes on children who look kind of otherwise well and if you rub your finger across one of those red spots, um, the skin becomes sort of white underneath it or, or clear again. The spot, you can press it and it goes away and then it flushes back. If you 
rub your finger across um, a non-blanching spot, then it doesn't become pale or disappear. It stays there and that's because it's a small bleed under the skin. And actually you can't sort of press that away and it doesn't flush back. It just stays as a, a permanent um, non-blanching spot. And is that more common with one particular type of the meningitis? Because I know that it, a lot of people have spoken about how you, the rash is not always prevalent. Yeah, so I think um, that, that is, so in, in the meningococcal infection, so that's the bug um, that causes, uh, it's got its name after the kind of infection it causes, which is meningitis. The bug itself can cause meningitis, but also a bloodstream infection that gives this rash. And um, the rash can initially look like spotty, but then rapidly change to being those small bleeds under the skin that don't blanch when there's pressure on them. And that's uh, sort of a feature or a hallmark of the meningococcal infection when it's in the bloodstream mm-hmm. and causing someone to be very unwell with their bile and um, you know, feeling really dreadful and potentially losing consciousness. So um, we think those rash, that rash is important and you know, that parents should have an awareness of that as well because it's something we see in children, uh, a rash that's changing or rapidly spreading mm-hmm. and becoming non-blanching. And obviously that's linked back to the time taken to to get that child to medical professionals and then the treatment. So what are the main factors that influence a patient's outcome? If it's not just time, are there options that you explore once that patient's admitted that can you know, give you different treatment pathways? Um, yes, so I think um, the type of infection it is changes so meningitis, as I said, is a big umbrella term. So most viral meningitis don't have any, mostly as a general, don't have sort of long-term consequence or problems afterwards. Uh, and they don't tend to be fatal, although I'm not going to generalise about all of them because there are some um, viruses that are more concerning, like the cold sore virus, the herpes virus. Um, but um, mostly bacterial meningitis, so the pneumococcal and meningococcal meningitis, have got um, a much a less good outcome. They can certainly be fatal without antibiotic treatment. Um, uh, people who have meningitis can go on to have hearing loss or problems with uh, um, impaired brain function subsequently, especially young children. Um, so there are factors that make it more severe, the type of infection. Also the age you get that. So I look after young children, including infants and newborn babies sometimes, or certainly the first two years of life, and that's a crucial time for brain development. So those things um, impact on longer-term outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so there's, there are de- definitely things that tell us about is this going to be more severe or not. But you know, early management, diagnosing which type of meningitis, all those things get brought together to work out how things will progress and what treatments are done. Now, I I picked up on some conversations or a podcast that I was listening to just recently, and there was discussion in the US about the administration of steroids before a patient started on antibiotics. And that apparently had some impact in reducing hearing loss in bacterial meningitis. Is is that something that's common practice in New Zealand? Uh, yes. So it's, it's not common. It's, it's around uh, that, that key moment of someone arriving in the emergency department and looking very suspicious to have meningitis. Um, the information we have about the kinds of bugs at the moment in New Zealand that are important or that we don't have a vaccine against um, are then help uh, make the decision around whether we should use steroids immediately just before or at the immediate same time we give those antibiotics that are sort of urgently required. So certain types of bugs that cause meningitis, um, there seems to be a, a little less hearing loss 
um, consequently should we give that steroid beforehand. And that's actually one of the uh, most evident with something called Haemophilus, which is a vaccine we use very commonly and we very infrequently see causing meningitis now. So actually the use of steroids is a little less common because the bugs that um, it's most important with uh, are now vaccinated against and we don't see um, you know, as a, a common cause of meningitis any longer. So sort of, um, it's, it's a, a decision made at the time and uh, is still used maybe in uh, you know, some cases. And what about the, the outcomes for patients? Can you talk a little bit about what the common after effects or the long-term implications for patients may be? Well, with um, antibiotic treatment, um, you know, the, the death rate, the meningitis when caused by bacteria really had a very, very high death rate before there was antibiotic use. And so now with antibiotics, um, we see that, you know, half or a third of people will recover without any problem at all after meningitis. Um, as a paediatrician, I see younger children and infants, and we certainly see, um, you know, up to 10% or 15% having some degree of hearing loss in one ear or actually being completely deaf from on both ears from a meningitis infection. And then another uh, 10 to 20% of children who will go on to have either uh, some amount of learning difficulty or really significant learning and development problems, including things like cerebral palsy and um, you know, quite severe brain damage that really impairs their function ongoing. So yes, now with antibiotics, we have um, you know, a, a a good number of people recovering completely from meningitis, um, but depending on how old you are and how serious the infection was, um, definitely hearing impairment for a, a proportion and also um, long-term brain damage and development problems uh, are something that we uh, still see ongoing. Mm -hmm. Now, were you involved in all of the cases that were presenting in the late 90s and early 2000s when we had the MengeB outbreaks at that stage? Um, well, actually, I did work as a junior doctor in the late, the mid 90s, and saw, uh, yes, many cases of meningococcal B. And then I actually went to Australia and did some training over there, and came back just um, with my own family in the late or the mid 2000s, uh, when the meningococcal B um, vaccine was just being used. Uh, mm -hmm. So in 2003, four, and five um, in New Zealand. So uh, maybe the beginning and the tail end of that epidemic, but it was a long 10-year, um, very high rates of meningococcal disease that uh, were happening in New Zealand that was um, you know, a, a very terrible time with a high number of cases. Did they affect a particular age group at all, or were you seeing it across all um, ages and stages? Uh, it was much more in, the, in young people and children. So under five, uh, under, children under the age of five have always had one of the highest rates of meningitis and meningococcal disease. Uh, that's true of many countries, but very true of New Zealand, and that was the highest um, incidence was happening in that young age group. But it was uh, children, including those up adolescents up to the age of 20, that were most impacted by that outbreak at the time. And that's, again, still true of meningococcal disease um, happening. We see it in the under five-year-olds and, again, in uh, adolescent age groups. And obviously with the most recent outbreak that we saw in um, December 2018 with the meningococcal W um, epidemic in Northland, they, they introduced an immunisation program for 14 to 19-year-olds, I understand. Was that to, to really ensure that that particular group were protected and, and the incidence of disease reduced dramatically? 
How how did that all come about? Can you talk us through the the response and the rationale behind that? Yeah. Yeah, so we, we, if we look at so meningococcal disease as one of the causes of meningitis, um, we see that, as I say, that age group of under five-year-olds and um, probably that 15 to 20-year-old age group, again, being um, a second uh, sort of surge of number of cases, and that's around um, just it seems that teenagers and mid to late teenagers seem to have a, a slightly higher rate of carrying that bug without symptoms, and so they are potentially a group that uh, transmitting it amongst themselves, but also to the rest of the community as well. So the reason to vaccinate teenagers is one, to give them protection because they're at increased risk of the disease. And possibly, although it's not um, been well shown with this vaccine, that we might be able to stop some of that transmission to other people amongst from teenagers who probably are a bit of a reservoir or have this particular bug at that time in their lives um, that then transmits around the other community or the rest of the community age groups as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, the theory behind targeting both uh, teenagers, both for their, self, their personal protection because they're actually at a higher risk of the disease and maybe a, a bonus would be that we might stop some of the transmission to other risk age groups as well. Has the program in Northland been um, successful? Has it adequately addressed that epidemic and the cases that you're seeing in that region? Um, so I haven't got the most recent information on that. I, d- I don't think... Uh, Despite uh, excellent sort of discussion around this vaccine being available, it all happened around December, January time. Um, there's probably some transient movement in, in and out of the region at the time. Um, that of those children and young people that were eligible to have the vaccine, maybe only two thirds have actually had an opportunity to get that vaccine. And so, um, when we talk about trying to reach every person, that hasn't been hasn't happened as yet. Mm. So, um, despite um, you know, some good sort of advertising and media around this is happening now and you can have a free vaccine. Um, not everyone's been able to get one of those free vaccines in that time period. Uh, and I haven't seen the current numbers of cases. And we still see meningococcal disease from across different regions in New Zealand. Um, but there was certainly a cluster in late 2018 that was very concerning from the Northland region. There was also some media reports about clusters in other regions that people were worried about. Did they ever get to the the same proportion or that sense that there may have been an epidemic in other regions of New Zealand? Uh, I think based on actual numbers of cases and um, case fatality rates that were being seen, Northland still had the highest number that made that vaccine program be need to be implemented in a real uh, in a quick time, timely manner. Uh, there were certainly um, not so many clusters, but cases that were occurring across the country and other regions as well, but didn't uh, perhaps achieve what we might call, and it is an arbitrary number of sort of epidemic threshold. I mean, there's ongoing activity of meningococcal disease across the whole of New Zealand and different regions, but they aren't, uh, don't, haven't shown that sort of clustering appearance that um, was happening in Northland uh, sort of more dramatically late 2018. Obviously, with that sense of fear about cases that are popping up in Bay of Plenty or Wellington or Southland, there's always going to be a call for other access to those vaccines. What's your view on on that tipping point as to when we could start to talk about or look at a universal or a national immunisation program? Uh, I think it, it, it's actually a very complex question and um, we have... Uh, 
health priorities, including immunisation priorities, and New Zealand has had um, an important priority for us has been making sure we access everybody with regards to immunisation. So we have we talked about the pneumococcal bug, and that's been rolled out to be uh, for a vaccination for all young children um, to have that vaccination and making sure they get that so that we have 90 to 95% of all young children getting that pneumococcal vaccine to protect them from that kind of meningitis. Mm-hmm. And then there's another kind of meningitis, the meningococcal meningitis, which at the moment we don't have a vaccine available for everybody. Um, the cases are sporadic and uh, infrequent, but you know, as you say, concerning and, and um, scary when they happen and you know, devastating. Uh, but trying to balance those priorities and which groups are most at risk um, is, is really difficult. And I think um, a plan going forward would be around how we do that for every baby under the age of five years and do we need to have teenagers involved as well and how do we get access to those groups in a sensible program through schools and through early childhood. And so um, at, at the moment, I think that's very much what people are talking about and how do we do that best. Our, our rates have been um, quite low since our last epidemic of meningococcal B. Um, so the last sort of 10 years has been a slightly quieter time of meningococcal disease. But yes, for the last um, two years, we're again having the conversation around how do we best protect the population across the different strains. And it's not a simple answer, I don't think. No, I appreciate it. It's, it's complex. And there's obviously quite a number of organisations and individuals that are involved in that decision making too. Are you at the, have you got a seat at the table there? <laughs> um, I think that um, uh, New Zealand, that we have lots of specialists in different areas and I, I do work in immunisation um, uh, research as well as um, understanding the, the best ways we can give those to young children. Um, so yeah, we're, we're part of the conversation and, and clinicians in the front line and children's hospitals do get to be part of that conversation sometimes too. So uh, yes. Brilliant. Emma, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us and and giving us a better understanding of meningitis and the diseases and the the various forms of infection that are considered underneath that umbrella of, of meningitis. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks. I hope it can be helpful. Thank you. This is part of a series of podcast episodes by the Meningitis Foundation Aotearoa New Zealand to raise awareness of meningitis, septicemia, pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease. For more information, you can go to our website at www.meningitis.org.nz or go to our Facebook page. If you just type in the Meningitis Foundation, you should be able to find us without a problem. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode. Bye for now.